Well, I'm excited to dig into this passage. A lot here to think about and consider. Uh, and so we're just going to jump right in. And our first point as we look at it is simply this. And no matter how great or how many sins you have committed, God was ready and willing to forgive those sins. And so we see in our text, we have two sinners. You have uh, one who knows she's a sinner, and so does everyone else. And then you have one who doesn't think he's a sinner, or at least that much of a sinner. Uh, And the one who doesn't think he's that much of a sinner is Simon. He's a Pharisee. And he invites Jesus over to his house for most likely is a banquet or a Sabbath meal in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's nothing unusual when the Pharisees would do that, when they'd have that, that meal or banquet, whatever it was, a Sabbath meal, to celebrate or honor Jesus. It's nothing unusual during that day and time that they would leave their door open and uninvited guests were welcome uh, to come in at any time, to stand along the wall or sit along the wall, and kind of listen in on the conversation between the rabbi that's being honored that day, in this case Jesus, and the rest of the Pharisees, and whoever else was there seated at the table. And so that kind of sets the context uh, for what's happening in our text. Jesus gladly goes to that meal, and while he's there, uh, quite unexpectedly to many, uh, though she was welcome, in other ways she wasn't welcome, uh, this, this woman, right? Verse 37 brings, brings our attention to her. It says, and... Behold, right? We know nothing else about her. We don't know her name. She never even talks in the text, but, but, Paul, but Luke wants to bring this out. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's her reputation. Very notorious sinner. Uh, Jesus confirms this. He says in verse 37, her sins are many. So she heard about this party uh, that was in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, and she shows up, and like I said, in and of itself, that's not necessarily startling, but it is startling because she's this notorious sinner, and Pharisees are these upright, moral men, and for her to walk in, I'm sure jaws hit the floor. Even more so as she does some very surprising things, Right? As we make our way through our text, it says in verse 38 uh, that she was standing behind him at his feet. So she walks in, and she's standing behind Jesus at his feet. Now, they did not sit at tables like we do today uh, with their legs under the table. It's interesting how they would eat. I don't don't know how comfortable I would be doing this. Uh, Basically, they would recline. And they would rest on their left arm and eat food with their right hand. And so they're reclining like that, kind of sitting around a small table or maybe even like a circular couch kind of idea with their feet aimed towards the exterior walls, right? And so that's what this woman does. She, she walks in and comes right up behind the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, standing uh, behind him at his feet, So she stands there, and it goes on to say in her text, she was weeping. As she walks in and stands behind Jesus' feet, she's overcome with emotion. It's an interesting word there that's used for weeping. It's a word that's used in other contexts to talk about uh, rainstorms, rain showers. And so she's not just whimpering and kind of shedding a, a tear or two. 
she's literally raining tears down onto the feet of Jesus. Quit the picture, isn't it? Why is she crying? We're not told exactly, but I think it's fair to say she's crying over an overwhelming sense of sin. She's crying over an overwhelming sense of forgiveness. She's crying over the overwhelming sense of being in the presence of her Savior. This flurry of emotions. She walks in, flurry of emotions, stands there behind his feet, and begins uh, to cry. Showers of tears. She doesn't stop there. She goes on then, it says in verse 38, uh, to uh, so she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. Again, that's, that's a strong word. We're familiar with the word phileo, which means uh, love, or it can even mean kiss. Here in the Greek, it's kata phileo, which makes it a very fervent and intense idea. It's also in the imperfect tense. And so the idea is she continually was fervently uh, kissing his feet. It's a powerful, powerful picture. And then she anoints his feet with the ointment. Expensive alabaster ointment. So that's the first sinner. This, this woman, this notorious sinner, walks in uninvited but kind of invited. Does some very surprising things. Very courageous, very humble. Uh, what, what she does. Then you have this other sinner whose name is Simon, and he couldn't be any opposite, and he has a reputation also, but again, very different from the woman. The woman is a notorious sinner. This man, though, is, is upright. He's a, he's a man of, of, of great uh, respect in the community. He's a student of the scriptures. He sought to keep it precisely. He said all the right things. He kept all the rules. He went all to the right places. He was, again, in the eyes of the community, this, this great guy that they, they looked up to. And again, the Simon, the Pharisee, and as we mentioned, he invites Jesus into his home for this dinner party, uh, the Sabbath meal or, or banquet, whatever it was. And we're not entirely sure what his motive was in doing that. The scripture doesn't tell us. We do know back in Luke chapter 6, verse 7, uh, that because of the many miracles that Jesus was doing, the Pharisees and scribes were trying to set a trap for him often. They didn't like him too much. Uh, whether that's his motive here or not, we don't know. It could just be he's curious. There's been a lot of emphasis in Luke 7 that Jesus is a prophet and more than a prophet. And it could very well be that this Pharisee is genuinely curious. Well, is he who people are saying he is? And if that is what he was thinking, if he was genuinely curious, like is he the prophet or not, it doesn't take him long to conclude there's no way this guy is a prophet. Right? Verse 39 now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he saw what the woman did, he said to himself, thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon is deeply offended. He's deeply offended that this woman would do this. He's deeply offended that Jesus would allow the woman to do this. Simon is not happy. Simon is not happy because like we talked about last week, Jesus is not dancing to his tune. He's not doing what Jesus expects him to do. If, if you're a prophet, a prophet does not act this way at all. No way would a prophet let the woman uh, do these things that she has done. 
And so what we learn from Simon here is if, if this woman is a notorious sinner and she's humble and repentant and seeking to receive the forgiveness of Christ, what we have with Simon is the exact opposite. We have a self-righteous sinner who's looking with eyes of condemnation on everyone else, especially this woman. You see, the better he got, the worse he became. Again, he kept all the rules. He went to all the right places. He said all the right things. And in the process, he got prouder and prouder and prouder and thought pretty good about himself and less and less of those around him. And so as a result, he looked down in disgust upon this woman and upon Jesus who would allow her to do what she does. This self-righteousness for Simon did what it does for all of us who are self-righteous. It made him blind. A blind to his own sin, a blind to the needs of others, blind to what Jesus is doing. Remember back in Luke 6 where it talks about we all have that load-bearing structure beam sticking out of our eyeballs, right? That's him. He has that. And so he's blind to his sin. He's self-righteous. He thinks he's better. He's condemning. He's very severe in what he thinks about others. So Jesus is there to help him. And Jesus tells a parable. And by the way, when, when Jesus tells parables, they are not meant to be these nice nighttime, bedtime stories to help you sleep better at night. Well, let me tell you a little story. And here's some cookies and warm milk and let you sleep well tonight. Now, the parables of Jesus were meant to be a punch to the stomach. And that's what he's doing here. This one punches hard. He says in verse 40 to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. And Jesus goes on to say, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And he asked Simon, now which of them will love him more? And Simon is very hesitant I think he can sense in a way that is a trap because it says the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debts. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Let me just explain that, that parable a little bit. Uh, denarii, or denarius in the singular, was a day's wage. And so in this text, you have one person who owes 500 days wages, which is close to two years, a year and three quarters. You know the guy who owes 50 days wages. So one guy owes 10 times more in debt than the other one, right? See how good I'm with math there? 50 versus 500. <clears throat> so there's a great amount of debts. But the sinker is neither one of them can pay it, right? They both have different amounts of debt, but in the end there's balance there because neither one of them can pay that off. And so uh, it doesn't mention in the parable, but, but the, the, what they did back then is if you had debt and you couldn't pay it off, you went to jail. And so they're both uh, very much likely headed to jail, except this moneylender is very gracious, and he cancels the debt of both of them. Now, very clearly, as you make your way through that, God is the moneylender, yes? The debt is our sin. Scripture says that all are under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no distinction. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All of us are unable to pay our debts. All of us need forgiveness. 
All of us are hopeless and helpless in and of ourselves. And praise God that he is ready and he is willing to forgive, to cancel our debt, to wipe out our sin. God is gracious. And we see in verse 50 that we receive this gift of salvation by faith. Verse 50 says to the woman, your what? Your faith, right? Say it with me. Your faith, right, has saved you. Your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is not earned. It's freely given to those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the big thing that I want us to see and understand in this text. And it might not be immediately obvious, but I think this is the point that Jesus is really driving to with his parable. And is this, that the focus is not the amount of sin, The focus is being aware of your sin. I think that's the rub. That's the focus in this parable. I say that in part because of verse 47 where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I don't think Jesus is saying to Simon, Well, it's too bad for you. If you sin more, you could have loved me more. All right? I don't think he's saying that. Simon, man, come on, if you just up up your sin game a little bit, you, you love me a little bit more here. That's not his point. His, his, his point is not the amount of sin. His point is the awareness of your sin. Simon and the woman were both sinners. Simon was guilty of prideful self-righteousness. The woman was guilty of whatever notorious sin that it was. Both of them were bankrupt. Neither one of them could pay their debt to God. Simon was just as bankrupt as the woman. Simon just doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He's so self-righteous. And so Jesus is telling that parable to help him to see, no, 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 you're just as much of a sinner as her. It's not the amount. It's the recognition that, Simon, you are a sinner. You're a sinner. And I would suggest to you that the greatest of sins is this. It's, it's to not be aware of your sin. That sin deceives, right? The scriptures say that sin deceives. But we always forget that sin deceives who first? You, right? Me. Sin blinds me. And, and Simon is blind. He's been blinded by sin. And there is nothing worse, no greater sin than not being aware of your sin. And that's Simon. He thinks he's good. He thinks he's all right with God. He doesn't think he's that bad of a guy. He's self-sufficient. He's self-righteous. He's blind. He's deceived. And therefore, Jesus says, you have very little love for me, and you actually have no forgiveness from me. That's scary, isn't it? The greatest of sins is being unaware of your sin. And when you're unaware of your sin, you're unaware of your need of forgiveness, and you're not forgiven, and you go on to a Christless eternity in hell. That's an awful place to be. There's nothing scarier than being unaware of our sin, unaware of our great sin. And I believe there are many Simons in our churches and in our society today. It's very easy to be Simon. And Simon is a very respectable person. Simon, in, in a way, respects Jesus. I mean, he invites him into his house, and Simons do that. Simons, they like Jesus. They got no problem with Jesus. They got a problem with all those other sinners. Well, I love Jesus. But man, that person and that person and that person, my goodness, I want nothing to do with them. That's Simon. 
That's Simon. Simon goes to church. Simon might even sing songs. Simon reads his Bible. And Simon is self-righteous. <clears throat> but they aren't aware of it. Man, that's an awful place to be. You see it? It's a scary place to be. I have a question to ask you that I think will help you determine, because I hope as you're hearing this, you're wrestling with this, like, like I had to do, man, am I Simon? Is Simon in me? Do I have the self-righteousness? Am I, am I blind this way? And I thought of a question that, that you and I can ask ourselves to try and identify uh, what kind of sinner you are. And the question is this. Who is the biggest sinner in your life? Who's the biggest sinner in your marriage? Who's the biggest sinner in your family? Who's, who's the biggest sinner at your workplace? Who's, who's the biggest sinner in your church? And if your answer is anything other than me, Simon is alive and well in you. You see it? Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the what? The foremost. Paul says there's no competition here. When it comes to sin and sinning, I get the gold medal. It's not even close, is what he's saying. I'm the chief. I'm the worst. I am the foremost sinner. And you and I should say the same. There is nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than me. That's what we should all say. And so we belt out the words in amazing grace, and amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Do you kind of like go, nah, it's hard to say, wretch. <laughs> wretch? Am I wretch? Some people don't like that, you know. They've, they've, there's not a few who have very much tried, and you can go to some churches, and they don't sing those words. You know that? They change the lyrics. Did you know that? But there are many churches where you go where instead of singing, saved a wretch like me, they say, who saved and set me free? Who saved a soul like me? Who saved and strengthened me, is how they'll say it. You see, Simon's alive and well, isn't he? I can't even get myself to say that I'm a wretch. But I say anything Scripture says, sing it even louder. Saved a wretch like me. And that the Scriptures say that sin has ruined me, it has broken me, it has twisted me, it has blinded me, it has darkened me, it has deceived me, it has twisted me, it has killed me. And I can't tell you how many marriages uh, would be transformed overnight if the husband and wife would recognize that they are the chief of sinners. They sin the worst, and they sin the most. And the same is true of churches and society. We, we need to feel your sin, and you need to see your sin first. And don't be like Simon. Don't be like, well, I'm just 50 days worth of sin here. No, it's, it's, it's greater than that, an awareness of your sin. I would say to you there is much shallow repentance, and there is shallow Christianity today because we have a shallow sense of our sin. We excuse it. My goodness, we celebrate it. We celebrate sin everywhere. We need to feel and say with Paul that I am the chief sinner. Like the woman, she's our example. Be like the woman and, and, and go to the feet of Jesus. 
weeping over overwhelming sense of your sin and weeping over the, the presence of Jesus and his rich, rich, rich forgiveness, and, but, but going to his feet and letting your heart be broken over your sin. You need to stare hard at the cross. If, if you sin and you think, what's the big deal? Man, you need to stare at the cross. You need to see Jesus and his, his body quivering and hear him shaking and, and, and striving to breathe under the, the fierce wrath of God for our sin. You think sin, what's the big deal? I don't, I don't really sin that much. It's not that big of a problem. My goodness, you have forgotten the cross. That shows you how awful and wicked and terrible our sin is, what our sin deserves. We must ponder hard the cross and let our hearts be broken over our sin. There's an unknown poet who once penned these words. It says, Am I a stone and not a man that I can stand, O Christ, beneath the cross? And number drop by drop thy blood's slow loss, and yet not weep. Not so the sun and moon, which hid their faces in a midnight sky while earth convulsed and groaned, yet only I can look unmoved, unwooed. Great God, it must not be. For I shall know the anger that he bore. O oh Lord, I pray thee, turn and look once more and smite this rock, my heart. That's the right response. When we ponder our sin, there should be no such thing as a dry-eyed Christian should weep over the sufferings and death with which our sin brought to our sinless Savior. Isaac Watts says it wells too, and he says, Well, might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my ears to tears. That's the right response. Like the woman at the feet of Jesus, broken and sorrowing, overwhelmed over her sin. Come to the feet of Jesus. Weep over the feet of Jesus. Kiss his feet. Anoint his feet with that oil. And see the door of forgiveness open wide. Jesus says to the woman in verse 50, again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What an amazing verse. Oh, woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She came in broken and overwhelmingly sorrowful for her sin. She came in with the identity of being a woman of the city, the sinner. That's her identity coming in, but not walking out. Walking in, she's known a woman of the city. Walking out, she's known a woman of God. And that's the salvation. That's the change, the transformation that Jesus makes in our lives. When, when we recognize our sin and we're broken over our sin and we lay them at the feet of Jesus, he says to us, your faith has saved you. Go in my peace. Go in my love. He transforms you from the inside out. You see, he, he changes your identity. What a Savior. Do you know that peace? Do you know that forgiveness? Do you know that salvation this morning? It's yours for the taking. 
as you come to the feet of Jesus and confess your sin, no matter how great your sin, even if you're like this woman, or even Jesus says her sins are many, great can be your forgiveness. Jesus is the Savior of our sins. You say, Pastor Andrew, you just don't understand. You don't know the, the, the things that I've done, the awful things that I've done. I'm a great sinner. Like, there's not even words for the awful things that I say and I do and I think, and I just can't believe it. Sometimes I do these things. I'm like, man, how did I do that? It's just the sin that comes out of me is awful. It's treacherous. It's evil. It's wicked. And the response of Scripture is, we, we get it, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. Great is your sin, but he's a better Savior. No stain too dark that he can't wash out uh, with his shed blood for our salvation. No matter, you can know the peace, you can know his forgiveness, you can know his salvation. You do not have to pay one penalty of your sin, not one drop of condemnation or God's wrath needs to pour upon you if you trust upon Jesus. You blow it repeatedly. You messed up so many times you can't even recall. If you have turned to Jesus, if you turn to Jesus, there is forgiveness full and free. Today is that day of salvation. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. God freely forgives. He transforms you. He changes you. Today is that day. And from there, when, when he forgives us, the response that it has for us is we exude Deep, deep love for Jesus. Look at, look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, don't go wrong here. Don't read verse 47 and go, Oh, I see. She was forgiven because she loved Jesus so much. That's a wrong interpretation of that verse for a number of reasons. One, that completely ignores the parable that Jesus just told. Were the, were the people in debt forgiven because they loved the moneylender so much? No. They were forgiven because the moneylender was good and gracious and canceled their debts. It also cont would contradict verse 50. If we read verse 47 and say again, well, okay, I see. She was forgiven because she loved Jesus much. Verse 50 says no. Jesus says no. Your what? Your faith has saved you. When it says in verse 47, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, the idea uh, that is there is with the result that. That's, that's the way to translate that for. Your, tra your translation might even have the word therefore. Uh, the, the, the CSB translates this well. They put it this way. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. See, that's the understanding of the verse. The NLT, the New Living Translation, puts it this way. I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. So she shows me much love. You see, that's, that's the idea that's there. Her love, her deep love and devotion, her, her weeping and the washing and the anointing, that's all a result of or an expression of uh, her forgiveness. In fact, even uh, when it says in verse 48, those amazing words where Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. I'll get nerdy with you for a second. The word forgiven there, the verb, is in the perfect tense. In the perfect tense, what that means is it's an action completed in the past, 
Hear that? Completed in the past with ongoing results into the future. This woman, I would suggest to you, came to the dinner party because at some point somewhere she's heard and seen Jesus preaching the gospel, and at some point somewhere she's placed her faith in Christ already, and she's come to that party because she's come there to celebrate her Savior to show her love, her deep, deep devotion, that somewhere she heard the gospel, she believes, she comes there, and she weeps, and she anoints because of her deep love and appreciation and gratitude uh, for her salvation. That's the idea that's here. But just to think about that phrase, she loved much. He was forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. And so you see that that validates that idea that it's not about how much you sin, it's about being aware of your sin. And if you recognize you're a big sinner, then you see that Jesus is a big savior and you'll have big love for Jesus. But if you don't think you're that much of a sinner, you're a little sinner, then Jesus becomes a little savior and you have very little love for him and for others. You see? That's what Jesus is saying in verse 48, 47. When, when you recognize your sin and how great it is and abundant it is and how awful it is, that I'm the chief, I'm the foremost of sinners, then you see how awesome and great and wonderful Jesus is, and you exude love for Jesus and others. But if you're like Simon, and you don't think you're that much of a sinner, you're self-righteous and you're condemning everyone else, then I'm not that much of a sinner, I don't really think that much about Jesus, and I don't love him that much either. Sure, I respect him, he's a nice guy and all, but whatever. That's what happens. And so this woman, because she recognizes her great sin, she exudes much love. And that much love follows. As I shared before, there's nothing unusual to have guests at a special banquet. Uh, They would sit sit along the wall. But this woman uh, dares, this notorious sinner, has the courage to walk into a Pharisee's house at great risk of severe judgment. I would suggest to you that much love follows Jesus wherever he leads. And here Jesus walked in there, and because she loves him, she follows Much love follows Jesus wherever uh, he leads and motivates you to go places you otherwise would not go. I would suggest to you also that much love takes risks for God, that it was risky business not only going to Jesus' house, but my goodness, she dares to let her hair down and use her hair as a towel to wash Jesus' feet. I can't tell you, uh, it's so foreign to us as a society today, I cannot tell you how socially taboo that was that they could even divorce a woman for doing that if you let down your hair in public. This woman takes immense risk because she loves the Savior. She's basically saying, I'm so forgiven. I love Jesus so much. I don't care what you guys think. I'm going to humiliate myself and embarrass myself in front of Jesus because I'm so, so, so thankful. Much love weeps. We talked about that. Much love sacrifices. The scriptures say that she brought her alabaster ointment, very costly, very expensive. It would have been her life savings. It's a great treasure uh, for her. Uh, she uses it to anoint Jesus' feet. I tried to think of a way to kind of picture that and think about it. It's, it's, it's kind of like, did you know there's such a thing as a $5,000 bill? I found that out this week as I was kind of thinking about this. It's kind of like taking some $5,000 bills and, and washing Jesus' feet with them. 
But that's what she's doing. It, love, is, love is costly. Love is sacrificial. That's what love for Jesus does. It pushes us to great lengths, to sacrificial lengths. So much so that other people look at us and like, you have lost your mind. How can you give that much money to the church? Why are you at church all the time? Why, why, why do you do all those things that you do? You're crazy. You've lost your mind. You need to go to an asylum or something. <clears throat> Love sacrifices much. It sacrifices much because Jesus is such a great Savior. But it's the opposite of Simon. Simon loved little, and Simon, therefore, is very, very condemning. The woman's there weeping and washing and anointing Jesus' feet, and all Simon can do is stop himself from anything but just bursting out in anger and outrage. And in his mind, which Jesus reads, you've got to love that. Imagine that you're thinking something, and Jesus turns around and answers that. That's kind of scary to think about. You know, Simon thinks to himself, my goodness, he's not a prophet. Why would he let her do this? And Jesus is like, hey, Simon, I want to tell you something. Right? That's, that's kind of scary. But Simon, this whole time the woman's doing what she's doing, is, is condemning and accusing and looking down on her. What an awful person she is. What is more, as you look at verses 44 through 46, Jesus uh, really brings it on here. It says, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That was the custom of the day, you know. To walk, you walk into someone's house, hospitality was, you have a pitcher and a, and, and a bowl there, and you would pour water over the feet and wash their feet. That, that was basic standard hospitality. You do that. Simon didn't do it. But the woman did it with her tears. And so Simon's very inhospitable, and it, and it continues. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. Again, that was social standard. You walk in, and you greet a brother with a kiss. They put their hand on the shoulder and kiss him on the cheek or the forehead. But he didn't do that. But Jesus says, from the time I came in, this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you do not anoint my head with oil. Again, it, it, that. In that day, it's a very dry area, and so they would commonly anoint their heads with oil, uh, cheap olive oil. Simon doesn't even do that. But the woman, $5,000 bills, right? Alabaster ointment, life savings, pours it out and anoints Jesus' feet. You see, Simon doesn't think he's that much of a sinner, so he doesn't think that much of Jesus, and he doesn't love him that much. You see how that's playing out? It's very much shown in the way how he treats Jesus versus how the woman treats Jesus. So please mark it down. Please underline it. Please think much on this. The more you realize how much Jesus has forgiven you, the deeper your love for him. The more you realize your sin, the more you ponder the cross, the more you'll be devoted to Jesus. That's why this woman has forgiven much she loves much. Simon doesn't care. He loves little. The question for me and for you then is, as you contemplate the immeasurable debt that Jesus has paid on your behalf for your sin, is your response this deep, deep, deep love for Jesus? Do you have much love or little love for Jesus? Do you love him in extravagant ways? Do you love him with a love that's willing to go wherever he goes? Do you love him with a love that's willing to take risks and even appear reckless? Do you love him with a love that's willing to make great sacrifices? Do you, do you love him with a love that says, I don't care what you think, I'm going to follow Jesus. Call me a freak. I don't care. I love him. It's all that matters to me. 
Have you experienced God's love in that way? I, I, I think of Paul. I, I love, love Paul and his, his fire and his passion. He, he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, that I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And just the next chapter over in Acts 21, 23, Paul says, I am ready to not only be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And you go, man, what gives, Paul? Like, whoa, Paul, pull it back a little bit. But what, what, what drives him? We're not left to wonder. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he tells us, the love of Christ controls me. Paul's ambition is to please Christ, even if it means dying for Christ, because he's consumed by the love of Christ and the love for Christ. It should be the same with me and you, yes? Listen, you and I, we get one pass at life. One pass, that's it. And the lasting measure of my life and your life is, did you love Jesus much? Did you make much of Jesus? If you want your life to count for something great, have eternal significance, realize how much Jesus has forgiven you, let that truth deeply drive into you and compel you to be sold out for Christ. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Then what does it say? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It is this overwhelming gratitude for forgiveness that makes the difference in everyday Christian life. You know, you, you read the Bible and it has a lot of expectations. It makes a lot of demands of my life and your life. It commands us to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor and meditate on God's word and to submit to one another, be patient with one another, forgiving one another, to be making disciples, more doing for Christ. You read through the scriptures, do more for Christ, do more for Christ, more sacrifice for Christ, more good works, more self-denial, more obedience to all of Christ's commands, more, more, more. That's what the Bible says, right? But I ask, as I, as I think about that, what, what will compel that duty? What will compel that obedience? It cannot be because, well, Pastor Andrew says so. <laughs> it's awful. It can't be because of duty. All, all this obedience that, that the scriptures expect and, and kind of piles on us, our, our response to that can't be like, well, I'm going to be a good Christian. That's what the Bible says. A good Christian does that. It needs to be deep love for Jesus. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I will follow Jesus. I will obey Jesus. Uh, why will I do that? Because I am forgiven much, and I love him so much. Please mark this down also. There will never, never be more done for Jesus till there is more love for Jesus. That's what's got to drive us. That's what drives the woman. Do more for Jesus, love Jesus more. Love Jesus more, you want to do more for Jesus. You're not content. Until you love Christ, it's all duty, it's no delight, it's drudgery, it's overwhelming, it's exhausting. But when you are stunned by your sin and staggered by the love of Jesus, 
You just want to do more and do more and do more for him because you love him so much. Is that making sense? Think about all we do as a church. We talked about Surf Sunday and the 20 different booths that we have. Think about yesterday and what we did yesterday. Think about what we talked about. Orangeville Day is coming up. Uh, We had the biblical counseling ministry. We had the food pantry and the baby pantry. Uh, We had the food truck box route. We have all sorts of different ministries that we're running. Why are we doing all this? Our, our mission as a church is to multiply, transform disciples. We, we want to saturate Barry and Elegant County with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But why? 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 Drive deeper. Drive deeper. And the answer needs to be because we love Jesus. Because we were great sinners and he has greatly forgiven us. We are crazy about Jesus. Think about what we did yesterday. That's crazy what we did yesterday, right? And I, I, I hope that the community that God gives the, the community eyes to, to see and be like, that's crazy. Why are you doing this? Why are you putting this all on for free? And then our response can be, it's because we're crazy for Jesus. Because he saw our sin, how deep and awful and wicked we were, that we were a wretch, an amazing grace. He saved us. And our only response is to love him much. What a Savior. Verse 44, turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? My word, that stops me in my tracks. He's He's not asking, do you see this woman in front of you? He's asking, do you, do you see this woman? Do you, see, do you see more than her sin? Do you see what I can make her to be? You see, we, we get stuck on people's sins, and we identify them by their sin. They're, they're notorious sins, their past, the present. But Jesus, he sees that. He's not ignorant of that. But Jesus looks to this is what she can become by my grace and my power. And so Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? And he's saying that to me and he's saying that to you. Do you see the people of Orangeville and Barry and Elgin County? Do you see them? Do you see not just their sin? Do you see what Jesus, what I can do? How I can transform them? Do you see them? Man, that's a piercing question, isn't it? Do you see them? I mean, do you really see them? Do you see how Jesus is at work, how he can glorify his name, how he can change their identity, how how he can save them, and how they can go in his peace? Do you see that woman? Do you see that man? We're so stuck in this us versus them mentality. My goodness, that needs to die. We are sinful sinners. There is no us versus them. Our battle is not against this world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the principalities and powers of this world. We are sinful sinners. Do you see the sinful sinners around you and how God can transform them the same way he's transforming you? Do you see with the eyes of Jesus? There's a a gal named Lisa De Palma. She ministers to prostitutes on Chicago's west and north sides. 
Uh, she penned these words in response to uh, these, this verse. She says, can you see her? Will you let God show you her face instead of her clothes, her eyes instead of her body? Can you see her? Will you let God show you? She has a name instead of a label, a broken heart instead of a hard one. Can you see her? Will you let God show you the image of God instead of an object of scorn, her worth to the Savior instead of her worthlessness to the world? Can you see her? Will you let God show you his heart of forgiveness instead of your heart that judges, his blood that covers instead of your rules that condemn? Can you see her? Will you let God show you? And when you do see her, what then? My goodness, that's powerful. And God's asking that same question. Do you see her? Do you see him? Do, do, do you see? Do you see it? What are you going to do? Just imagine... Imagine what would happen if we really believe that God has grace for sinners, loving them the way Jesus loved them. Love them the way the woman was loved at the Pharisee's house. Do you see them? Do you have eyes to see? Are you loving and seeing with the eyes of Christ? Are you fired by devotion for him? Because you see your great sin and his great forgiveness. Forgiven much? Love much. Loving much means seeing people and loving them where they are and where Jesus can take them. All God's people say, Amen. <clears throat> Amen. I'm going to pray, and as I do, I invite uh, Josiah to, to come on up <clears throat> for a closing song. Heavenly Father, your scriptures deeply challenge us. It is so easy to forget the benefits. It is so easy uh, to minimize, excuse our sin. It's so easy to be entertained by sin. Lord, do a work in my heart, do a work in each one of our hearts here to be able to say with Paul, no, I am the chief, I am the foremost sinner. You got nothing on me. I win the gold medal. You're a thousand meters behind me. Great is our sin, Father. Lord, we know the work of the Spirit is to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. We're asking, Spirit, convict. Convict us of exactly that. Stagger us by the greatness of our sin and correspondingly stun us by the forgiving grace and love of Jesus Christ. Great is our sin and even greater is our salvation. Deep is our stain, and deeper yet goes the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise you for Jesus. And Lord, as we ponder the cross, as we ponder our sin, as we think on Jesus, put that fire in our hearts. Let it fuel us to love you and to love others, to follow you wherever you want us to go, to, to not worry about what other people think about us. What are they going to say if we do this? Lord, who, who cares? We love you. We want to make much of you, Lord. And we want our lives to count. And we know that comes by living for you, pursuing you. Only one life to live. Soon it will be over. 
Oh, Lord, fire our hearts with, with forgiveness and the love of Christ to burn for your praise and for your glory. And give us those eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the, the woman of the city and the man of the city. Give us eyes to see the Simons. Eyes that don't condemn and judge. But eyes that are tender and merciful and compassionate and gracious. And hearts that point them to Jesus Christ who can change them forever. Give them a new identity. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know your peace, they're deeply convicted of their sin even now, oh Lord, be gracious to them. I pray they would run to you right now to the feet of Jesus, weeping over their sin, broken over their sin, and that you would announce over them those words, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.